Hello and welcome to another episode of Research at OU Law School. Today I have a conversation with George Lighthart, who is a PhD student at Tilburg University and looks at human rights implications of mind-reading technologies. Brain imaging and brain scanning technologies are fast developing and they are already being used in countries across the world in the criminal justice system. In this talk we talk about implications to those developments for the right to privacy, but we touch on other rights as well. In the future, I hope to have a longer conversation with him about the implications of these technologies on the protection of self-incrimination. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I think it's very relevant to today's growing brain-reading technologies. Uh, so we're talking here with Shursh, who is a PhD student at Tilburg University. Um, and he researches on, well, what's coming out of neuroscience. Um, and all this wonderful technology about um, reading the mind and what implications do we have for a law. Um, so, George, can you, can you tell me something about yourself and uh, what your research is about? Yeah, so I'm a PhD researcher, a PhD student actually uh, at Tilburg University, the Netherlands. Um, and in the context of my PhD research, I uh, examine the legal implications, legal mm -hmm. boundaries, of the use of coercive uh, brain reading technologies mm -hmm. in the criminal law context uh, within the context of uh, the European Convention on Human Rights. So I basically focus on the legal implications, um, the legal human rights implications. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about the technology? What can it do at the moment and what it's, it's hoped to do in the future? So uh, my PhD research focuses on uh, basically three different uh, categories of applications. Mm -hmm. uh, first, it's uh, memory detection. So it's basically it's using brain imaging techniques, for instance, uh, fMRI or EEG, in order to uh, detect whether or not the subject of the test recognizes uh, certain stimuli. So it could be uh, whether or not you recognize the gun that uh, was used during the criminal offense uh, and whether or not you recognize the victim and uh, the getaway car. So th th that's a specific uh, technology that I focus on. Um, and besides that uh, memory detection, I always uh, look into uh, lie detection, mm -hmm. not with a polygraph, but this time with a, a, an fMRI scanner. Um, and the third one is the use of brain imaging technology for forensic diagnostics. Mm -hmm. So it can be either structural brain imaging or functional brain imaging, for instance, uh, in order to detect whether or not the defendant suffers from traumatic brain injury. Um, and the fourth uh, category concerns the use of brain imaging in order to predict future dangerousness. Mm -hmm. So uh, that can be used in the context of risk assessment um, not uh, I, th I think it cannot be used to to base a, a risk uh, completely right. on the outcomes of, of, of that test but it could uh, be complementary right. to, to existing uh, risk assessment an, tools uh, so an extra evidence or yeah, corroborating just something yeah indeed it's, it's just uh, an extra piece of information uh, that the judge or the jury mm -hmm. uh, could take into account in order to uh, to make a to make a decision, a well-informed decision. All right. In your in your talk today at the seminar, you've um, put on the screen um, published research of 
things that have already been used in this manner. Um, so can you tell us more about that? Uh, yeah, so... So how does, how, what's the application for the courts? The, the specifically, examples if you have. So the, the application that are currently being used in criminal mm -hmm. justice systems uh, around the whole world uh, concern mostly the use of it in the context of the insanity defense, mm -hmm. for instance. Uh, and then it's, it's about um, diagnosing brain abnormality, for right. instance. Um, so so, so it, it is used uh, in that context, also a bit in the context of uh, risk assessment. Mm -hmm. But like memory detection or lie detection, th those are uh, more futuristic possibilities. Right. Okay. Um, so what are the, the legal implications of this technology? So in the seminar, you had at least three legal categories of this effect. So can you tell us more about that? So how, how they can be used in... Uh, well, not how it can be. So let's, let's talk first about that, how, it's gonna, how it can be used in a legal setting. And then what are the rights implications of that? Ah, okay. Um, according to the research, the, the technology can, in general, contribute to answer questions regarding guilt, legal mm -hmm. insanity, and, and risk assessment. And the interesting thing about criminal law is that uh, a defendant, prisoners, they often don't want to cooperate with any criminal procedure. Right. Uh, and, and, and then the question kicks in whether or not you can coerce those defendants or those prisoners to undergo a, a brain scan uh, in order to contribute to either uh, the assessment of guilt, legal insanity, or, or certain risk. But at the moment that uh, coercion comes in, uh, a lot of legal questions arise uh, in the context of the European Convention on Human Rights. For instance, uh, it's about uh, the right to respect for one's private life. It's mm -hmm. about the right to uh, freedom of thought. It's about the privilege against self-incrimination. Um, so those rights uh, basically concern getting information from someone and, and right. therefore certain questions arise uh, but a fourth question uh, could potentially arise if someone uh, refuses to go in, uh, to, to undergo such a test and the police said yeah but you have to no i i don't want it okay then we use frank physical compulsion uh, to make you do it uh, and that could in certain certain circumstances uh, potentially also raise questions in the context of the prohibition of treatment. Mm -hmm. So these type of, of evidence gathering, sort of mm -hmm. in, in that sense, are there other instances in which we use this, not in terms of um, neuroscans, neuroimaging, but in other types of um, situations? Yeah, yeah, we do. Uh, I think, for instance, in the Netherlands, uh, the police even if you are only suspected of a criminal offense, the police mm -hmm. can uh, coerce you to uh, to give your DNA, or, or right. in other words, the police forces you and, and, and take DNA, uh, which is also a form of uh, acquiring information without consent. Yes. Um, so that's a that's an example, I think. So this is so this is one possible extension where this goes, um, in the sense that this could be. Um, likened as it's it's the same as just collecting hair or blood or saliva from or taking a cheek swab from a person. So do you f 
think that this is uh, different or is this something very similar? So whether DNA testing and for instance, mm -hmm. first it's important, I think, if you compare uh, the two methods of criminal mm -hmm. investigation, um, it's important to be aware about the context in which you draw that analogy. So right. in the context of Article 8, there, uh, the right to privacy, there are some particular aspects relevant. Uh, uh, those aspects can, can be different from the aspects that are relevant in the context of Article 9, the right mm -hmm. to freedom of thought, um, and so on. So I do believe that there are some relevant similarities between DNA research mm -hmm. uh, and uh, coercive brain imaging within the context of Article 8, right. uh, because both concern um, obtaining personal and unique information from the individual, both uh, inf uh, information is biological by nature, um, and, and those are aspects that the, the European Court always uh, also uh, takes into account in its judgment, judgments in light of Article 8. Uh, however, in the context of Article 9 and or Article 6, other aspects are relevant. So maybe in the context of Article 6 mm -hmm. and the, the privilege against self-incrimination, um, DNA and coercive brain reading might be completely different because DNA exists independent of your of your of the will of the su suspect, right. whereas you can you can argue that um, that a, a functional fMRI in mm -hmm. which context you have for instance in the context of lie detection you have to press a yes or no button after each question the information uh, that is being obtained exists dependent of one's will, mm -hmm. which is relevant in the context of Article 6, uh, but not so relevant in the context of well, Article 8. So, so, so yes, I, I do think that there are uh, important similarities between DNA testing and uh, uh, brain imaging, as far as it concerns Article 8. Right. So. But exactly, you said different contexts matter in this case. Yes. Um, so how, how far are sort of these, these technologies transferable in different contexts. So for instance, if we use them outside of the criminal process, if we use them, let's say, in, uh, in companies, if we use them in the job uh, market, if we use them in um, whistleblower investigations uh, from states, for instance. Um, so it, the, does that change the nature of the prohibition of the line that we draw, this is acceptable, this isn't? Uh, yeah, well, so I, I basically focus on criminal law, mm -hmm. uh, but but indeed I can imagine that uh, in the context of of of, uh, of private law issues, there are a lot of other interests, a lot of on other uh, legal re regulations that that you have to take into account, uh, which you don't have to take into account into in the, in the context of uh, criminal law, for instance, mm -hmm. because for instance, in criminal law, the interest of applying uh, a brain scan, for example, could be very high eh? if you are uh, suspected from uh, of a, a cruel murder or mm -hmm. a terrorist uh, uh, offense. Then, then the the reasons that could potentially justify an interference with your privacy uh, may be, yeah, how do you say it? May, may be proportional. Yeah, yeah. So, and it, I can imagine that it. Uh, 
that that could be different if uh, if a firm says, okay, yeah, you have to uh, cooperate with this uh, with this lie detecting mm -hmm. test because uh, if you have a slightly different view on uh, on on if you hate the company, yeah, if you hate the company, then yeah, then we will fire you. Yeah, that's those interests mm -hmm. um, are completely different, which would therefore be relevant in the context of uh, whether or not the interference is proportioned, for instance. So what happens? So th th there's because law always tries to f to draw a line, and then everybody else tries to blur the line. Um, so for instance, we we seem to have an idea what would and would not be acceptable in a criminal situation. What would be acceptable, for instance, in, let's say, um, counterterrorism, um, counterintelligence gathering, um, usual police uh, matters that don't go to the criminal setting? Um, the, do we have anything, to, are there any principles I'm trying to say which would say no this is a, this is unacceptable um, in the similar way that we say for instance waterboarding is unacceptable even though it's done for um, for security uh, is done for protecting lives etc etc yeah so I, I think that the the principles are the same as we apply to to criminal mm -hmm. law context to to any context the principles are for instance, laid down in the European Convention on Human Rights, right. the question uh, is, however, yeah, how how should we apply those mm -hmm. already existing principles to new technologies uh, and maybe even to new technologies that, because those technologies are new, can always be can also be applied in in different contexts mm -hmm. because uh, we we were used to react on acts. But if you are, uh, if the technology enables us to uh, react on thoughts, yep. yeah, that's that's an, that's a all a whole uh, different area, mm -hmm. um, which which will then also be subjected to law, which will right. be subjected to existing law. Yeah. However, how should we apply the law? That's an open question, which researchers that is the sixty-four thousand dollar question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in your opinion, how should we apply this? Um, I know it's a it's a heavy burden task <laughs> from a, a PhD researcher, but it, let's say you control the universe, right? An unlikely scenario. How would you order this? Yeah. Well, let's say I, I control the universe and I finish my PhD. PhD yes. Uh, then probably you know. <laughs> uh, so n now it's still a bit guessing, um, but but I think I'm I tend to to argue that. Um, we have we have all kind of human rights protecting mm -hmm. all those um, those interests of uh, of all people that we think are um, are worth to be protected. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 those human rights they are general, generic uh, in their nature, and they're and there to protect regardless of and who you are. Indeed, and they should cover, so so for instance, you have a, a generic right mm -hmm. to respect for privacy, that right should cover all thinkable uh, privacy interests mm -hmm. that are worth to be protected. Right. So, so I tend to argue that uh, the law, how it is, provides enough uh, protections. In, or yeah, enough protections and, and enough 
at least enough possibilities to protect it. Right. Um, so and and so that, that that's the my first thought. I think we don't need new fundamental human rights. Right. For instance, we don't need a fundamental human right, uh, a right for the protection of your private of your mental privacy. Mm-hmm. So that should be covered by Article Eight. Uh, or, or maybe uh, to some extent by Article uh, 9, the right to freedom of thought. Uh, however, what we should think about is h- how should we interpret these rights mm-hmm. in, in, in new ages where technology can sh- uh, shed new lights on them. Mm-hmm. F- for instance, if you are talking about the right to freedom of thought, freedom of thought, conscience and religion, uh, I think or religion or belief, it's... Yeah. Um, so there is a lot of case law on religion. There is a lot of case law on conscious, consciousness. Mm-hmm. However, there's almost no case law on thought. And also the literature is, is not... Th- there is no clarity what thought in the meaning of Article 8 uh, should mean. What, 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 how, how should we define it? Um, Probably one reason why never, uh, why many people didn't think about this, is because it's very hard to to obtain one's thoughts. Yeah, to police it. Yeah, yeah, yeah w- w- without uh, the subject speaking about it. Mm-hmm. So, however, now technology seems to enable to read thoughts, uh, and then uh, eventually the question is: Okay, but but are that thoughts that uh, we Wanted to protect uh, through Article Nine, or, mm-hmm. or or what is the word thought in the meaning of Article mm-hmm. Nine more a philosoph- philosophical thought or or, or, or scientific ideas, um, and, and 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 then we can answer that question. We maybe we can say yeah, well, uh, um, when we created the right, we we basically thought uh, about thoughts concerning more bigger thoughts, important mm-hmm. things, which are a bit more close to religion or, or consciousness. Uh, h- however, uh, maybe n- now we see that uh, technology enables us to read all kinds of thoughts, um, then we can have a discussion whether or not that already existing rights should also cover those thoughts. I think uh, it, it might be a bit different um, from... Because before you speak, you sort of kind of have to have an idea of what you're talking about in the sense that you have thoughts and then you express them. Sometimes you have an inner monologue you don't have to express. Um, and I think for a lot of the Article 9 uh, jurisprudence, the, because we weren't able, as you said, weren't able to, to, to crack open that part where you, you're alone with yourself uh, in your mind, um, and that those, because we weren't able, there were thought to be absolute, nobody can can prohibit you here. But I'm wondering now whether um, by extending that um, possibility that this, as it happened with um, high value, low value speech in the US as it is, or with um, hate speech in um, Council of Europe, um, whether that those sort of divisions will prop into this thought part or whether we'll still have it's regardless whatever you think it's in your it's in your mind as I say we'll only deal with it once it leaves your brain as it is or through your mouth or you write it down publish it on the internet etc so do you think because we're able to to read it 
Do you think that, that those type of divisions in terms of speech will also come to thought? Um, yeah, they, they might. So, so last time I, w- I was thinking and I, I was reading and uh, there was an author and he, he argued uh, also, okay, we, we don't need uh, new fundamental rights, mm-hmm. but we have to reinterpret uh, the old ones. Uh, the existing ones, and for instance, that means that Article uh, Nine should should embrace just free thinking a, a, as a whole. Mm-hmm. How, however, he uh, mentioned, um, if as long as that right will be absolute, mm-hmm. probably it it wouldn't be applied so much because if if the right applies and it's absolute, then any prohibition is that is a, a violation. Yeah. Indeed. So and and then maybe. There are too many situations that mm-hmm. fall within its scope, right? Um, and 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 therefore he suggested, yeah, maybe if if the right was not absolute, but mm-hmm. it, it provides strong uh, protection, strong protection, but not absolute protection. Uh, maybe therefore it it will be a strong right because mm-hmm. because then it would be applied more often, um, and then and and that made me think, yeah. If if uh, the the right to freedom of speech is mm-hmm. also not absolute, so m- maybe we can um, the th- the way that we shaped the right to freedom uh, of expression uh, can maybe provide helpful insights in how we should reinterpret the right to freedom of thought, for instance. Mm-hmm. So in in that sense, I think indeed that some ideas that are connected with freedom of speech could be transferred to freedom of thought because uh, since uh, a couple of years uh, thoughts can also be uh, revealed. Mm-hmm. Yes, the, you, you showed some um, the Facebook is working on mind reading technologies. Um, the ultimate password. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, Alright, well, um, thank you very much for the talk and hopefully we'll see you again. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. As ever, you can find out more about us on the Law School's website. As you know, the Law School started its 50 Years of Law blog celebrating the 50 years of the Open University. In it, we discuss issues that are near and dear to our hearts so you can have a window into our passions and into the legal developments of the last 50 years. We also plan to continue with our Judging Brexit series and we hope to start another series called Legal Walks where we take you on a tour around the UK city. You can find the links to the blogs in the show notes. The music in the background is Dirty Mac by Endless Love. Take care and hope to see you again.